is September 15th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Tom Blanpied. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Physiology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Hi, Tom. Hi. Uh, his lab uses super-resolution live cell imaging techniques to look at real-time synaptic regulation in dendritic spines. Around the room, we've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi, Zalmar. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And Brian Derrick. Hi, Zalmar. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So first off, um, since the postsynaptic density is such a complicated 3D mesh of regulatory proteins, receptors, cytoskeletal machinery, yada, yada, can you first just orient our listeners with kind of a general uh, tour of this world and, and then maybe tell us a bit about some of the traditional ideas about PSC structure that came from static EM studies and how this view is changing as we move into being able to see submicron dynamics in the region. And I know that's huge, so take it as you will. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, it, the PSD, is the postsynaptic density, is uh, the site on a neuron that uh, where synaptic contact comes in. And so there's postsynaptic receptors that respond to neurotransmitter are concentrated there. And that's, uh, that's the, really the beginning and the end of it to uh, a large extent, I think, because the what fascinates us about synapses is that they carry out computations in the brain. And so the degree to which one synapse contributes to the circuit function depends on presynaptic characteristics, like how much neurotransmitter is released, and postsynaptic characteristics, how many receptors are there, how strong a response does it uh, elicit in the, does, it, does its activation elicit in the postsynaptic cell. And so understanding the number of receptors is important if you're interested in circuit function. And I would say that um, the study of synapses really underwent a huge change a um, number of years ago now when focus shifted for, uh, to understand neural mechanisms of plasticity that allow changes in circuit function uh, to store memories or to store uh, new information of one sort or another. And though many mechanisms are possible to explain changes, uh, 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 circuit plasticity in the animal. Um, my lab, like a lot of labs, has gotten interested in a very specific set of those mechanisms that change the postsynaptic density and change the number of receptors at the synapse. Um, and so this is one, one uh, major form of, of cellular plasticity. And for us, the, the essence of the question really is if you want to store lots and lots of information in the nervous system, it makes sense to think about storing that at individual synapses because you've got how many ever trillions of synapses you, you have, and each one apparently can be independently adjusted. So that's the essence of synaptic plasticity for me, is that the mechanisms apparently exist to make each synapse operate independently of its neighbors and to be altered independently of its neighbors. And that's where the, the richness of information storage in the nervous system comes from to some extent. So for us, yeah, understanding how it is that you can change receptor numbers at a synapse ends up being really a key aspect of uh, information storage. Uh, plays out over development and uh, all sorts of learning, learning opportunities that we face in our environment. But I, want, I wanted to, to get a sense of what the sort of traditional view of the PSD has been in the past, this idea of this sort of anchored, cohesive structure, and how that's maybe, is that right, first of all, and how that's 
sort yeah. of been changing as we get into sort of sub really looking at high resolution stuff going on in real time. Yeah, that's right. So, so for us, um, I think we're we're fighting a little bit against um, modern notions. We're totally undergoing this this change. I think in how we, how we view synapses, like you're saying, the more we look at it, the more it's clear that everything about the synapse is changing all the time. It's structurally dynamic. We've shown uh, with you know probably the resolution that we can that it's changing in size and shape all the time. We know from a number of years now that that the molecular constituents of the synapse are turning over continuously. And so essentially you can see a synapse and we can measure in vivo that an individual synapse in a, in a living, behaving mouse, that individual synapse can exist uh, almost mm, at a steady state for months and months at a time. So individual synapses persist for very, very long times. But underneath that uh, apparent stability is constant molecular change. And that, that really has been a revelation over the past, um, let's say, 10 years or something like that. So, yeah, the notion of a synapse came from, came from EM, where you see uh, the adjoining pre- and postsynaptic cell. You see this dense collection of proteins on the postsynaptic side. It just it it's really a very striking structural characteristic of the cell that seems very natural uh, to assume is the most one of the most rigid or static uh, mm-hmm. elements in the cell, and that turns out yeah turns out not to be the case. But I guess it's also um, the prevalence of of the PSD through evolution, right? I think uh, the PSD is the most uh, preserved molecular machine. Uh, so it's it's molecular the, the molecular components are present in sea sponges all the way to us and more or less the composition in terms of PSD ninety five at least is about the same and the idea that it was rigid I think it's because when you try to pull these molecules the entire PSD comes with it right. Yes, at least yeah, some subset of molecules. Is uh-huh. So you cannot disassemble s- it sturdy, yeah. that that easily. So the and then this idea that it has to be rigid, you know, to support synaptic strength, right? But um, but I mean, even even when they knew this, uh, people or us, we we knew this. Um, we knew that things had to move. Proteins cannot stay there forever, right? I mean, otherwise they, they fail, right? Yes. I, I would say that for me, coming, coming to neuroscience from a psychology background, uh-huh. that's not an obvious concept. And it's, and it's uh, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to be inherently true that you couldn't keep a protein around for as long as you wanted. I think, in, in fact, you're absolutely right that the half-lives of proteins never get more than a few days or something. Right, like right. It's like from hours to a week. So yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. Well, it depends on the protein. Keratin sticks around, well, longer than some people than me. 
<laughs> well, but uh, the components of a cell, right. they, the, if you do these pulse chase uh, experiments, right. the, turnover you, the turnover is uh, very fast. This is uh, an empirical result. It's not a priori obvious. that, that Well, we knew that uh, many of these things were happening, and if somewhere is dynamic, is the place where we believe things change, which is the synapse. Uh, but but that, that was. Uh, so are you saying that that synaptic proteins have to be replaced because they get worn out, yeah. or because uh, because you want to have change at the synapse? Yes. Well, maybe maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but from a metabolic point of view, they get worn out. So I've heard that, but I would you mind explaining what goes wrong with the protein? At, with well, the, I think I think several of them will several of these proteins will either misfold. Right, and or they can break apart just because they're there, they're worn out, and then they start generating free radicals. So if you do that, then everything starts to break down. Uh, I mean, I don't want to push this because I know it's not the no. topic of t our conversation no. today. But what gets worn out? You know, like covalent bonds, they like have a lifetime, and you have your covalent bond that gets like old and sticky. Well, I, I don't know for sure, but it could be that the nano environment changes uh, a lot through metabolism. Uh, and the nano environment uh, determines the, the, the precise folding of, we believe, uh, right. of these proteins. And if the protein is moving from different compartments, cellular compartments, then if that nano environment changes, you could expect that Something probabilistically will happen to this problem. So, so in general, you would say it's the choices essentially are you make sure turn, protein turnover is quick enough to ward off the bad results that would happen mm -hmm. if that's you have lysosomes cleaved by you know, ample tons of lysosomes in, in the in and they're around spines, right? right. Uh, you, um, uh, your uh, former mentor showed that there's. Um, uh, Mike Ehlers, right, uh, that there are these lysosomes uh, in the spine head and that they are actively transported out of the spine, right? Um, well, yeah, there, I, well, I think there's a, yeah, any number of mechanisms could could uh, be not in tight enough control to result in right. protein damage. So it could, yeah, it could just, you have to keep turning things over to make sure you don't have some protein that's been rendered non-functional still incorporated into the synapse or, or even, you know, pathologically functional. Right. Or you just, like you were implying earlier, Charlie, that, that, uh, you, to, you have to, you have to have enough turnover ongoing to stay nimble so that when you do want to change functionally, everything's in place. You don't have to assemble some, uh, disassemble some really incredibly difficult machine. So in order to change one part, you have to make your your car engine easily easy enough to get into to change the oil uh, I, don't know, I, don't know. I don't know what the analogy is but uh, you have to be able to, you have to you have to be able to take it apart uh, all of this still makes me really nervous because <clears throat> whether it's proteins degrading or synapse being dynamic because it's its nature how do you hold on to something like a memory when your synapses are not only Appearing and disappearing, but the proteins within the ones that stick around are changing by the hour. Well, you replace the oil in your car. I mean, if we're going to use this analogy, you replace the oil in a car. You don't expect it to operate differently afterwards. It doesn't change 
you know, what can. key is going to make the car start. Well, yeah, but you change the driver, then it dramatically changes how the car operates. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one view, I guess, is that um, what you change, is, for example, in a synapse, what determines the strength of the synapse is the number of ampere receptors. So you can, you can anchor them, right? You can just like keep them, and they have a, some kind of hypothetical mechanism that will say, now it's time to get rid of one and uh, open the slot and put another one. Another one that has arised from just looking at uh, single particle tracking and other um, results is that there is um, a an active mechanism of insertion and extraction of the ampere receptors from the surface, right? So you have active uh, active sites for that, and if you change that balance, I mean, if you if what you disrupt is the balance, right? So you just uh, allow more ampere receptors to get inserted into the membrane, and therefore they'll just going to be captured by the PSD. Yeah, that's right. Right. Or vice versa, right? So it's just like pulling uh, pulleys. Yeah. So it all in that in that uh, view of things, it all comes down to mechanisms at the synapse that are uh, able to capture or position receptors in the, the right. right the right uh, the right way. So I guess that's the nitty gritty of a lot of your work is about what the mechanisms are that hold the receptors in their place and maybe move them into their correct places and make sure that they're there when they're supposed to be. And uh, this idea of a slot is kind of, uh, I don't know, it seems a, a little bit hard to grasp for me. Mm. It's a, for one thing, it is a term that has no molecular obvious picture that goes with it. So I want to, if I could, I'd like to have a, a molecular image of this slot. So that means all of these molecules that are attached to actin and then would normally attach the receptor through this sort of series of molecular connections that establish that. Those are all there, but there's just no amper receptor. So basically, those have a binding site for an amper receptor or something like that. And once they see an amper receptor, they would grab it, and that one has filled the slot. Is that the, is that the way the idea works? I think it's a very good portrayal of the idea. Yes, absolutely. The, the constituents are there to make up a whole holding material for a certain number of receptors and uh, but there's if those receptor if those receptor holding slots are present in the synapse why don't they get filled with receptors presumably it's some sort of balance of entry and exit rates there's a somewhat of a supply of receptors that are freely mobile in the membrane outside the synapse and they have some chance of encountering the synapse I think some people feel like maybe there's a there would be a means to direct receptors from outside the synapse to the synapse. Other people feel pretty strongly, I would say, that the diffusion of receptors in the membrane outside the synapse really is totally undirected free diffusion to the extent that that can happen in a lipid. Uh, and that it's it's a chance encounter that's going to allow the receptor to be incorporated into the synapse. If, the, well, if the, all the slops are all filled up, then that receptor's out of luck. It's going to bump into the <laughs> synapse and... Uh, be sent on its way. So normally in this kind of thing where we imagine a binding site, you sort of picture that if there was an empty slot, then the energy associated with the receptor binding where it is versus binding an adjacent open slot is 
zero, there's some little energy of activation required for it to jump from one to the other, but it would have a tendency to do that. And so if a slot opened up in the middle of the synaptic density, the nearby receptors would have a tendency to migrate into that, leaving open places, and the open place would sort of migrate around. But your data kind of argue against that. Uh, don't they argue against that? Or they, they at least put limits on how quickly that process takes place, because I, I completely agree. It seems almost impossible that that wouldn't, ta- wouldn't happen if there are discrete binding sites. Let's take this a little more concrete. So this, this idea of the slot, the matrix, that's an actin delimited uh, matrix that we're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about your data in more, in, in more concrete terms just so our listeners aren't grasping it? Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, well, one of the things we've done is to try to measure uh, receptor mobility in the synapse. So we have uh, fluorescently labeled receptors, and we can, um, through uh, a variety of high-resolution imaging methods, try to examine how, how freely mobile they are when they're in the synapse. So we know they're at the synapse because that's what we're looking at. We have the synapse itself or the postsynaptic density labeled with some other protein, and we're looking for whether or not the receptors can move around when they're on the synapse. And this has been done a lot by uh, Daniel Choquet and and his colleagues in particular that have uh, labeled individual protein molecules, individual receptors with an antibody, and the antibody is uh, tagged with a dye molecule of some, some sort or a quantum dot, and they can follow the motion of that individual molecule around with extremely high resolution. And that's, that's shown uh, really unequivocally that receptors do move around when they're in the synapse. The, uh, we've taken sort of a different approach to ask a similar question and uh, use a laser to darken the fluorescence of receptors in one side of the synapse and to, look, and to see how quickly still fluorescent receptors from the other side of the synapse move over into the side of the synapse that we targeted. And by that measure, we can put some kind of sort of uh, limits on the types of measurements that are available with single particle tracking. Uh, And we can say really that very few receptors are very quickly mobile. So we would tend to say that, you know, some single digit percentages of receptors are able to move on the sort of seconds to low minute time scale around in the in the synapse and that's that's a really that's that's a much more uh, I guess rigid or static view of synapse organization than you get from uh, from some other measures I of guess course you're not deleting the receptors they're still there taking up their that's slots that's right they're, they're just not fluorescent anymore that's right that's right so and so there isn't really an empty slot there waiting for some other receptor to pop into and this is the right. but what this shows activity. is that if these slots you have to I guess one way to visualize it is like you have columns right and these columns uh, like the spine is an inverted cathedral in which uh, the, 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 these columns that are the slots are tethered. Hanging down from the ceiling of the cathedral. Yeah, these are tethered by these chains uh, made out of acting. And one idea was, so if you see, you're looking to the ceiling, these things are moving around. That, that was one hypothesis. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Like the complex, the AMPA uh, PSD complex was tethered 
And that's why I couldn't leave. Right? So you will have like this like robots from the matrix that you see in the scenes moving around. But your data doesn't show that, right? And I think there is no evidence. Uh, I mean, there is yeah. no, uh, although they use some models to, based on those hypotheses to fit the data, there is no evidence for that. I mean, it should, although, although, I mean, the fact that a very few fraction are highly mobile and a large fraction of receptors are immobile is consistent with these ideas of molecular crap. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. Yes, that's right. And I think, uh, and that has been seen in in many many uh, other preparations. Right? That's right. So, yeah. but I, I'm wondering. So, this is all sort of steady state culture. What happens if you asymmetrically puff some glutamate on there? I mean, does does activity could could it sort of push the system over to you know moving things around in that in that lateral scheme that you're looking at? I mean, what what would you expect there? Well, yeah, is it clear expectation is that when you want to change the number of receptors in the synapse you're going to you have a, you, you have a relatively small number of choices you can um, sequester receptors outside the synapse so that those that do leave spontaneously so we'll talk about let's say loss of receptors first Recep receptors leave spontaneously through their normal infrequent exits of the synapse and you can sequester them outside the synapse and not let them get replenished that's going to just naturally let the number of receptors run down that would be the time constant of that uh, reaction is should be well characterized by the normal turnover rate of the receptors in the synapse, and that that time constant is probably a little too slow to explain the triggered activity depend activity driven drop in receptor number, which can sometimes be quite quick. Um, another option would be to disassemble the slot. If there's some mechanism that's holding the receptor, then you can. Uh, through a kinase or some other action, disassemble the slot, and then the receptor has no choice but to leave because it doesn't have anywhere else to go. Another option would be to target the receptor itself and to target the binding interaction that it has with a, this putative slot. So you could phosphorylate a receptor, for instance, and that would disrupt its interaction with a binding protein. Uh, and another possibility would be this macromolecular uh, macro crowding idea that Fidel has really put forward that that uh, you don't need a specific binding interaction to keep a receptor at the synapse. You need uh, uh, maybe you could explain it a, a, you know exactly how you would characterize the requirements, but you need an organization. You need uh, a lot of protein, it's, and the the sometimes think of it as the the gestalt of this environment that the protein is in, and that even absent any particular binding interaction is sufficient to keep the protein there. And uh, and so to let receptor numbers decrease, yeah, you have a lot of options for how you can could I, bust up. Before that. Before we get into the complexity of that, that's pretty of uh, these various mechanisms. Oh, I want to sort of repose the problem the way it comes to me. So if the everybody is basically stuck on a slot in the postsynaptic density, the only way in and the only way out is through the edges. There isn't a way. Up through the middle or out through the bottom of the synaptic density, I, I as far as we know. I completely agree with you. You will still find people <laughs> that, that do not agree with that huh. uh, on the basis of a, uh, almost no data, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, okay, so well, if we if we were to posit that the only way in and out were through the edges, uh, then and things don't move 
don't diffuse rapidly, molecules don't diffuse rapidly, then the ones in the center get stale. And if we're thinking that proteins need to be turned <laughs> over, you can have stale proteins in the center of the PSD. And, and so uh, if, if you were to just watch turnover, what you'd see is the turnover in the middle is low, the turnover at the edges is high. I don't imagine anybody's ever been able to visualize turnover quite that way. It's sort of like ringworm. And the center is, is demarcated as dead tissue, and the surrounding tissue is really the live infection. Let's not try to edit that. I think the ringworm metaphor is that. Ringworm podcast. Welcome. Excuse me while I scratch that. It's just the first reference to ringworm in our entire series. And the last, maybe. So, to pursue the non-ringworm version of the metaphor. Tinea. I'll just say tinea. Tinea versicolor. Uh, it seems like the viscosity of the thing has to change if you want to really shake things up. So if you wanted to you know, replace turnover the whole thing or you need to remove a bunch of them at once or add a bunch of them at once, the diffusibility of receptors needs to be able to be changed in a, in a big way. That's, Is that I, plausible? I think that's entirely reasonable. I, I, don't, um, I don't have... Uh, Data one way or another on it, but it's an experiment that we're we're trying to do right now, obviously, because it's it is it is really important. And if it were not true, and we found that during the induction of long term depression, that during the induction of triggered loss of receptors from synapses, that the mobility of receptors that remained uh, did it wasn't changed. That would, I think, really narrow the mechanisms that you had, had to choose from. Because maybe it would have to be something that acted specifically at the edge to just, just release the edge receptors or something like that. So Which totally, there's totally an hypothesis. I mean, there's a corral hypothesis or model uh, that there's like basically an entrance point. Right. And, yeah. uh, oh, and a gate? But yeah, yeah, it's coral. It's like it's totally like western. A, well, yeah. We have to explain this because not everybody. Yeah, so you can imagine that there is like a picket. There are several models that are borrowed from biophysics, like a picket and fence model, in which transmembrane proteins can be moved, or or even from the PSD can rise, or being lowered, and that will interact with the cytosolic domain of the transmembrane uh, protein. And when you raise this. Uh, uh, extend these proteins, you have it fenced in. So right. this is a fence that forms everywhere around the edges and goes away. You could you can imagine that. And the Kuzumi model, uh, which um, uh, it's uh, it's very prevalent on how uh, AMPA receptors move inside uh, postsynaptic densities, is based on that hy- either that or that is tethered, right? So that is the fundamental hypothesis. Um, what what we proposed was like I mean I mean what to, uh, tell us about the corral. The corral. Well, that, that is a, well the picket and fence. The picket and fence is a suburban version of the corral. So the corral has a chute, a loading chute. Well, it could be. It can be modeled like that. But I mean, doesn't what it has? There is a series of obstacles with a specific. I am in a, just you can imagine that it can be a, a circle a, with a, a perimeter, and sure you can make a a, 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 Z, a C shape, but also you can have randomly distributed obstacles 
that uh, this ampere receptor, as it moves, it will bounce off a few of them, and in an average time, it will come out, which will be the, basically the same thing as just having a C with a specific aperture. If that happens, would you expect a higher concentration in the periphery rather than... Um, no, the higher concentration of the periphery is an issue, okay? Oh, yeah, it, it, is, it is an issue of the self-organization. I mean, we... What we uh, propose with uh, Sridhar Raghavashari, who's also a collaborator of, of, of Tom, is that molecular crowding al allows molecules to stay inside the postsynaptic density. They're just bouncing off obstacles. Uh, I will use the word paradoxically, it is when things bind, when these ampere receptors bind, then the viscosity becomes homogeneous, and then you allow these ampere receptors to exit or to enter as deep as you can into the postsynaptic density. Um, that's so, so that they can be uh -huh. internalized? Internalized into the postsynaptic density without any need of a sophisticated metabolic process. Right, you just have to have uh, these slots can be there, right? They don't need to be the slots like uh, defined in in the in the classical model. I would call it. They just have to get active. They bind a little, for a, a little bit to ampere receptors. They unbind, and now this ampere receptor can get deeper and deeper into the jungle of the PSD. Once things calm down, the ampere receptor is trapped. In, in instead of a single corral, we propose we have proposed that. It is a totally random corral that is like this macromolecular crowd. And it will take a very long time to exit. So Tom's data suggests that if the corral hypothesis, look, it, uh, to me, it suggests that the uh, cytoskeleton still could play a corral role. Because if you remove that, what could be left, and this is something I was going to ask you, is, is that is it possible? No one's mentioned protein-protein interactions, and they're very strong. I mean, you have protein-protein binding all the time. It's a big problem in any kind of imaging that I do. I mean, you have for non-specific um, Could those proteins, just by virtue of protein-protein interactions, stick around for some time, or stick to each other for some time, and maintain some organization without the crowd, and then pulling away the protein? It's just, you're just sort of... It's going to take longer for things to drift apart just because of protein interactions. Is that feasible? Sort of a latex for latex formation in that. Yeah, it's sticky. Well, I guess the, there are, the simple version of the corral hypothesis is certainly uh, insufficient because, yeah, you see patterns within the synapse, see patterns of receptors within the synapse, and so you know there has to be some sort of internal organization. And so the original biophysical models just with this perimeter and uh, the C-shaped perimeter or a porous perimeter, there's no internal structure there in the model. And so the fact that the model accounts for various aspects of receptor exchange rates is only partially satisfying because there's so much about the synapse that it's not even remotely able to explain. So the, the, the simple corral is not very satisfying, and, and the particular, well, the, the kind of dominant uh, substrate of that corral that's been suggested would be the actin cytoskeleton, and that is very unsatisfying because, as I showed today, you dissolve the actin cytoskeleton and receptor exit rates don't really increase all that much. Uh, so it's clearly not uh, not the case that you you need this intact actin cytoskeleton to keep the keep the receptors there. Um, so then the question is, what's what's left? And certainly the protein interactions are 
are going to be important. And I think the kind of modeling that Fidel and three have done is is to try to figure out what the nature of those interactions are, right? And, and the, t- the type of optical approaches we would like to take is to see how much structure we can observe in the proteins of the postsynaptic density to, and whether or not they match up with any potential receptor pattern so that we can understand if, I mean, from one point of view, if receptors are uh, uh, constant, able to be mobile in the synapse, uh, at all, sometimes you might think that they'd be able to occupy. They would be preferentially found in the parts of the synapse where there are a lot of binding partners, because they're more often going to bind there, and that's where they're going to be. You might also think that they're going to be actually excluded from those areas because it's so crowded they can't hang around, and they're going to be found preferentially in the relatively less dense areas of the of the synapse um, where there's less crowding. But they're not going to be able to get out because they have to pass through this really dense area. Uh, they'd have to to get out. What's the stoichiometry of all the binding? Like, if it, is it one to one for the amphoreceptors and the, the the first partner of the amphoreceptor in that in the axial in that chandelier? Right. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, well, there there's uh, biochemical points of view on that, and there's uh, EM tomography now that's uh, coming around um, from Shabin Chen and and Tom Reese, um, and they have identified the likely structure that PSD95 adopts when you see it in a, an EM tomograph that has a, at least some large proportion of PSD95 molecules adopt a rather distinctive vertical kind of uh, pencil-shaped structure. Huh. And so they can look in a tomograph, and they, without, even without an antibody, they can look at the molecule and have a pretty good idea that this is PSD95 or one of its close relatives. And they can do the same thing for uh, receptor molecules because those are big and bulky and you can kind of pick out the amper receptors and you can kind of pick out the NMDA receptors. You know, I'm sure there's a failure rate with all these identifications, but you can, just from that, you can start to see that that a given amper receptor um, is almost always associated with one of these vertical filament So there are no rogue uh, receptors just floating around and they're looking for a slot, or there are very few of them in there doing that. Well, it, that that's certainly the way it's it's portrayed. I think they I think they have numbers on the the, the fraction of amphoreceptors that don't have a vertical filament with them. Um, I would I would have to say that tomography is still in its kind of early days, and so the number of synapses that we have so far to really examine this is is a little bit limited. Um, but you know they they. Yeah, one of their undertakings these days is to knock out different proteins and to look to see how the relationship between structurally identified proteins and the receptor distribution really changes in these knockout synapses. And it's going to be a great approach. And people like Richard Weinberg have, you know, uh, it's a, one of the beauties of EM, I would say, is that you take the same idea and you put it in two people's two people's hands, uh, you know, the, some of the preeminent electron microscopists in the world, and they come out with really pretty different ideas of what the salient features are. Uh, and so Richard has some great data starting to look at the organization of uh, protein ensembles that form relatively distinctive, uh, more clumpy, I would say, in the, you know, probably insulting way, uh, sort of a clumpy distribution that then actually do see, seem to tie back to the cytoskeleton. So he sees, he can identify individual actin filaments that, uh, that abut a protein uh, concentration area within the PSD as though there is, 
it's like it really is some sort of a structural underpinning for this idea of a bunch of proteins that have to get together to create a slot for the receptor. <coughs> so it's, a, it's very provocative. There probably aren't enough clumps in the synapse to account for all of the slots, so maybe a clump doesn't equal a slot. Uh, but, you know, the, it's like we can start to see the, our predictions of what these different uh, models would look like. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about tomography in the near future. I'm so worried about uh, about receptors going stale in the center. And, and <laughs> I one like the, that. I was one thinking of the, about One that. of the cool observations you've made is that the is the postsynaptic density is deforming and twisting. Yeah, and what is the center? There isn't a center. And so, uh, w uh, if, you, <laughs> if you watched one of them was in a center as the thing deforms, would that one? It could keep its nearest neighbor relationships yeah. approximately, yeah. Yeah. but still find itself at the edge. And then back into the center, could it be doing that? I mean, is it moving that much and changing and distorting that much so that so that any one of them doesn't really stay at the center for a long time? Absolutely. But no. No, I, I really don't know. I, uh, I, it seems very reasonable to me. Absolutely. Well, that, I mean, that would solve the, 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 uh, the corral problem. And that is, is that the reason you have a lot laterally is because the ones in the center are being sort of sucked away. I was wondering, are there particular types of synapses that have uh, mostly lateralized receptors or that, that, that kind of annular arrangement? Because if so, I would predict those, those uh, uh, synapses are ones that have receptors with high turnover. And as new ones move in, the older ones, which preferentially would be in the center, are the ones that would be most, not because necessarily there'd be mechanisms to allow for the removal in the center, but the ones in the center are just likely to denature more and to be pulled out or, or, or just removed or denatured right there in the spot. So I don't know if that's yeah, Part of it is I think we are, we're barely able to answer that first question of what's the pattern like different types of synapses oh, because, it, because it has traditionally involved accumulating measurements of immunogold molecule, uh, immunogold uh, labeling over, you know, hundreds of synapses to come out with a distribution because you're going to have one or two gold particles per synapse and so you come out with a, a net map of where the gold is and you see this traditional notion that came from Richard Weinberg and, and others since then that the amp receptors are a little bit more enriched towards the periphery of the synapse whereas the NMDA receptors are tend to be more enriched toward the center of the synapse oh, okay. and so this is this is another issue well, so I, I, I guess just to follow up on that, I certainly hope that we're getting to the point now where we're going to be able to measure receptor pattern at individual synapses and see um, within a within a brain region, you know, within a given synapse type, how um, how reliable is the pattern and it, can it be especially specifically if the synapse if the postsynaptic density is writhing around and changing shape. That's right. It would be uh, it's a little bit of a challenge to maintain those patterns. They'd have to be some kind of average over time. Yes, that's exactly the way we would assume it's going to, to work. Yeah, that the patterns yeah, at any individual synapse will will be variant over time. And that's with, within the limits of this sort of topologically constrained uh, idea. So the, the topology of, the, of these changes, uh, at least of the ones that I've seen from your figures, uh, is they stay topologically constant. I mean, a new hole doesn't open up in the center. It doesn't, you know, change a, a ball into a cup. It, uh, yeah, I, w I look forward to being able to really uh, 
define those parameters well enough. That would be that would be great. The holes that we know where exist in synapses are really in these. Uh, you know, you measure them in tens of nanometers or something like that, probably, and that's that's where we hope to be in a couple of years, but it's not where we are now. So whether or not holes that well, like see, that so open holes and like close, that we don't, we don't seen know. Yeah. At the level of resolution that we have right now from these, watching these movies. That's right. So there could be there could be some important changes like that. Because we've known for, for many decades about the yes, how complex individual postsynaptic densities can be. And it's the general excuse me, the general notion is that large synapses, large PSDs are uh, have more receptors. They're stronger synapses. They're computationally interesting for that reason. And they're more likely to be uh, morphologically, structurally complex. They're more likely to have perforations in the center. They're more likely to have uh, kind of, you know, d different interesting annular shapes and so on. If diffusion, uh, if the diffusion different distance from the center to the edge is really important, then, then big ones have to become complex to keep that distance constant. That, that seems right. Yeah. Do you know um, what happens to PSD to the PSD in like in like in fragile X? Um, or do you have any idea? Or, or has anybody looked at that? I mean, the spines in fragile X are longer. Yeah, yep, longer, uh, longer way longer, longer. absolutely, uh, yeah. and uh, that is related to mental retardation. It's like a very it's one of the few. <clears throat> Illnesses that we know a lot um, from the genetic or, origin, right? Um, and I wonder if if uh, the PSD dynamics is is preserved or is it is um, uh, modified. You know, I'm I'm probably going to embarrass myself by saying I'm not quite sure if anybody has even done the really very straightforward FRAP experiments of mm. PSD ninety five to look just at the turnover rate with optical methods of the component proteins, mm. because that would, I think, be really revealing. If you see in Fragile X or some other mental retardation uh, model system that the spines are smaller and the synapses are weaker, um, uh, but yet when you look at the molecular dynamics of the synapse, like the turnover rate, for instance, mm. it doesn't look like a small synapse in a normal cell, mm. in a wild-type cell. That would, I think, be pretty revealing. Yeah, it would so it really yeah. indicate that there's a different mechanism right. at play there that's uh, yeah, maybe involved mm. in the weakening or maybe maybe mm. contributing to a different functional status of that genetically compromised synapse. That's really interesting. That would, those would be very informative. So you have a few more years of work ahead of you. I, I hope so. That would be great. <laughs> well, I, I feel sorry for you in a sense because you're at the beginning of a really exciting story, and there's so many questions. It's, I mean, it's exciting because it's, it's you get to pick your questions, but it's depressing because you can't answer all of them. And I know that there's this desire to. <laughs> I always try. Isn't everybody right. in that position to some degree? Mm -hmm. I'd be surprised if I find myself out of that position. Any, any, but yeah, <laughs> we can answer any one of them, though. I'd be happy. I mean, I, yeah, we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out whether what we're looking at really uh, is one of these phenomena that we think has a realistic chance of affecting synapse function or affecting synaptic plasticity mechanisms. Because there are all sorts of ways you can imagine things could work, 
and so we have to try to focus ourselves down to the ones that we think are the most likely to, to play out. But a lot of times, you know, we are we're our ability to observe is uh, outstripping our ability to test functional relevance, and that makes me uncomfortable sometimes. But at the same time, it's a little bit the uh, whole idea of basic research. It's insanely great to be able to see this stuff in a live cell, change it in real time in a light microscope, and not to be stuck with cells that have been killed and killed fixed and, fixed, and yeah. embedded That's in right. plastic and impregnated with heavy metals. Right. Uh, because, the, because we have this entirely different view of it, and the opportunities for seeing this stuff happen... In, you know, in living color, all different colors at once, and moving around and stuff. It's, it seems, it just seems huge. And there are a couple yeah, of different fantastic. techniques. So some are 2D, some are 3D, and, you know, there's a lot of... The two-photon stuff in vivo, it's, yeah. it's all... Well, what's, in your opinion, given these new imaging techniques, and given the, our view of the synapse, that what we grew up with, which is fine... <laughs> What are some of the dramatic, I mean, at least two of the dramatic changes that have happened now that we've been able to actually observe our model fu- functioning in real time? What, what are the big changes that have that, uh, changes? What are the revel- revelations that we've had that either contradict or support our old view of the synapse? Hmm. Well, there are a lot of different technologies you might be thinking of there. I mean, there's yeah the ability to measure things in vivo, do imaging types of experiments in vivo. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, well, just starting with that technique. I mean, movement. I could change. And then the other thing that really strikes me about the results is, even though they're moving, they keep certain things invariant. And so just the amount of... Uh, the, just the total amount of movement, this change that's going on, and then... The fact that in the middle of all that change, there's something that stays the same. Right, that's a fascinating yeah. point of the, of the polysynaptic density, something that is so well-preserved in evolution it, that has to be very rigid. It apparently has to be very rigid. It preserves its shape, but yet is subserving a dynamical function that we believe is where we store real-time information. Sort of see right. this. We used yeah. to worry about: is this thing a structural thing, or is it a process, a dynamic thing? Mm. And this is an yeah, amazing way yeah. to visualize yeah. the fact that it is a structural thing and it is a dynamic thing. Yeah. The components of it are never the same from one moment to the next, but the but the assembly stays. Maybe so, something like us. <laughs> you know, we're constantly changing, but there's something says. Kind of We're made out of synapses. <laughs> that solves the problem. Then we don't have any more questions. <laughs> circular argument solved everything. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom Blanpied. This has been a Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.